And so we are continuing this morning in our series in the book of Ephesians, Christ and the Church, where we're looking at what it means to be in Christ and what that demands of us as Christians. So now we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Hear now the eternal living word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever asked someone if they're a good person? Unless that person is a Christian who truly believes in the gospel, their answer will most likely be yes. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done. They most likely believe that they're a good person. And not only do most people think that they're a good person, but most people believe you just need to do some certain things, some simple things to become a better person. Most people believe that To be a good person, or simply to be better than you are, you just need to get your act together. And there are dozens of articles online how you can be a better person. And most of these articles repeat the same ideas, and they're not actually bad ideas. Most of them are good things, like always be kind, let go of anger, be forgiving, and so on. They're actually biblical advice. But the issue is that their starting place is all wrong. God reveals to us in his word a much different truth about who we are, about our capability of being good, and the reality of how anyone becomes better or becomes a good person. Throughout Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus so far, we've seen how Paul told the church to praise God for all the blessings he's given us in Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world for adoption in Christ, to be redeemed by the blood of Christ, to receive the inheritance in Christ, and therefore he gives us hope in Christ. 
And Paul thanked God for the faith of the Ephesian believers and while asking the Father to give them the spirit of illumination. And this would reveal to them the knowledge of the power of God that works in them, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in victory over all of his and our enemies. And now he sits currently at the right hand of the Father where he reigns. But now Paul is moving into a different direction. He's going to lay out for the Ephesians and for everyone, anyone who has ever lived, three truths of salvation. And so in our passage this morning, we'll see what you're saved from, what you're saved by, and what you were saved for. So Paul begins by applying the truth that the power of God is working for the good of the church, for the good of the believers in Ephesus, and he applies this not only to them, but to all believers everywhere in all of time. And he begins with a starting place. In the first three verses here in chapter 2, so he starts in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so Paul begins this passage not only with the starting place for the Christians in Ephesus, but every person who has ever lived besides Jesus himself. Everyone being born as a descendant of Adam, that includes you and I, inherited Adam's sin and a sinful nature from him. Our starting state, where we begin in life, is much worse than any of us understand on our own. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In Romans, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And so we're born into this state of sin. We're born under the curse of the law, dead in our trespasses and our sins. And this is a state of humanity from birth. And you live this way. Every person is born walking in the way of sin, living for themselves, living in rebellion against God. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The people who are dead in their sins live following the ways of the world, live according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who is Satan. And so Satan continues to exercise spiritual authority over those who are disobedient to God. It's the initial state that everyone is born into, living a life of spiritual sin and death, having no idea, no idea that they're following the philosophies of this world, following Satan himself who's at work in them. And no one is immune to this. Paul reminds the Ephesians that this is the universal status of everyone prior to salvation. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all like this at some point, and most of the people in this world still are, living according to the passions of the flesh, living according to their sinful desires. And this makes someone a child of wrath. And this is the first truth of salvation what we're saved from. Ultimately, anyone who is saved by Jesus Christ is saved from the wrath of God. 
And Paul is saying that everyone deserves this wrath. God's perfect, righteous holiness and justice demands that sin be punished. Just one sin deserves the wrath of God. But as Paul is pointing out, no one sins only once. From the moment we are born, we are sinners. It's our nature to sin. We sin repeatedly, every moment almost of every day. And he says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you were storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be fully revealed. And so Jesus saves all who believe in him from the wrath of God, but also from the horrible state of the sinfulness that they're living in, living for yourself, living in the passions of the flesh, following the ways of the world, thinking that status and wealth and pleasure and entertainment, caring only about what you want when you want it, thinking that the universe revolves around you. And this is the sinful state that is true for all of humanity. And it's what makes everything in life so difficult. Having been a teacher for two decades, the most difficult part is dealing with a classroom full of sinners every day. But it's not just the kids who will cheat, lie, and deceive any chance they get. But the whole building is filled with sinners. The administration, the policymakers, the teachers, even myself. And this is what makes all human relationships so difficult. It's why a good marriage takes so much effort, because you're a sinner married to a sinner. It's why raising children is so difficult, because they rebel against you from the moment they start crawling. Now, this is referred to in theology as total depravity. It means that sin affects every part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, our desires. Now, it's not utter depravity. It's not that every human being is as sinful as they could possibly be. Everyone could sin more than they do. But it means that every aspect of our humanity is affected by sin. And it's important to remember this because we can easily forget what we're saved from. The wrath of God which we fully deserve. And a sinful state, being dead in our sins, living for ourselves, living in sinfulness every day. Living by the philosophies of the world, following Satan himself. But the truth is, in Jesus Christ, there is salvation. And Paul turns to the reality of this salvation, starting in verse 4. He writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So after laying out the state of humanity that everyone was once in at some point, dead in your sins, following the world and Satan, living in the passions of your flesh, a child of wrath, Paul now says, but God. Possibly the two most amazing words in the Bible. James Montgomery Boyce once wrote, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. If you, ca- you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. Because but God means there's a change in our state. You were helpless. 
You were dead in your sins, living in rebellion against God, deserving his wrath. But God himself stepped in. The author of life is the author of salvation. And he did so not because you deserved it or you've earned it in any way, but out of the richness of his mercy and out of the great love with which he loves you. God's response to you in your situation, being dead in your sins, has arisen out of his faithful, steadfast love, out of his mercy and grace. The motive for God's saving work on your behalf is attributed solely to his character. And out of this, out of his character, out of his love, he made you alive together in Christ. God brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life with the same power that he raised Christ from the dead. Paul consistently connects the resurrection of believers with the resurrection of Christ. It's through the power of God that raised Jesus that you were brought to a new spiritual life. As Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And this gives us our second truth of salvation. You're saved by the grace of God. You are saved from the wrath of God only by the grace of God. There's nothing you can do on your own to avoid what you deserve. God's holy, righteous wrath and punishment. And this is the magnitude of our original state that we're saved from. When you're dead in your sins, following the world around you, following Satan, you didn't know that you're even in that state. You didn't care. You're helpless and hopeless. But God... But God in his infinite wisdom, mercy, and grace stepped in and saved you. You didn't contribute to your own salvation. Paul is making this clear. He explains it further in verse 9. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation, your faith, your new life in Christ, it's all the gift of God. You're saved from the punishment of your sins, from your sinful life and following your own way. And you're saved from this by God, by the grace of God. You did choose to follow Christ. You chose to believe in him, but only because God chose you first. And he did so while you were dead in your sins. And God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These are things that God in his grace does and has done for you in your salvation. You've been resurrected to a new spiritual life in Christ. You've been seated with him in the heavenly places. This means that your new spiritual life in Christ is an eternal life. The power of God in you that is at work in you has brought you to this new life. And he's conquered the power of guilt and sin over you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, Paul gives us the reason why God did this. He said, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has bestowed his gracious gift of salvation upon all who believe in Jesus Christ, upon you, so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward you, toward I, 
in Jesus Christ. Now, people often ask, why does God allow sin and evil in the world? And there's a few explanations that come to this. But one is that it's through allowing sin that God can fully reveal himself to us. It's through the impossible situation of being dead in our sins, walking in them, living a life of spiritual death in this world with a great cavern between us and God and you not being able to bridge that cavern on your own, being an enemy of God. It's through this situation created by sin that God reveals the immeasurable riches of his grace. It's through who we are and what he has done for us that he shows the magnitude of his kindness to us. Without being sinners, we would never understand the vast grace, mercy, love, and power of God. And in his grace, God has shown kindness to us in giving us the free gift of salvation through the gift of faith in his son. And so you've been saved from the wrath of God, from the punishment your sins deserve, from your helpless and hopeless state by God himself, by the grace of God. Not by works, not by anything you've done so that you can't boast about saving yourself. You didn't contribute one iota to your salvation. It's all a free gift of God's grace. Now Paul concludes this passage in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul here is laying out a purpose for our salvation. So we see what we're saved from, we see what we're saved by, and now this is our third truth of salvation, what we're saved for. God made you a new creation in Christ. He saved you from his wrath and from your sinful state for good works. Paul's clarifying the relationship between salvation and good works. And so first I want to mention, what what do we mean when we say good works? The Greek word translated as works means a deed or an action. It's something that you do. But as it's used throughout the New Testament, it usually carries an ethical meaning. There are good works, which are according to the will of God. They are done, uh, God's works done through the believer. And then there are evil works, and this could be anything from self-righteous works of the law or simply acts of sin. And so Paul here specifically mentions good works. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in their chapter on good works, states that good works are only as such as God has commanded in his holy word. It's the word of God that defines what is good. And the actions that are in agreement with the word of God are good works. Now, back in verse 9, Paul mentions that salvation is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he's saying that your good deeds, your good actions in following the commands of God, living according to his word, doing the things you're commanded to do, not doing the things you're commanded not to do, he's saying that these good works don't contribute to your salvation. Your salvation is completely the work of God. He chose you. He called you to himself. He changed you. And through the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, you now do the good things of God. 
And this relates to what's called justification by faith alone. Our good works don't contribute to our being justified, which means being declared righteous before the judgment of God. Our legal standing before God is not based on what we do, our works, but on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 10 now, Paul is saying that good works are related to our salvation, however. Good works are not the means to salvation, but good works are the evidence of salvation. God has saved us to do good works, and he has already prepared these good works in advance, and we are to walk in them. We're no longer to walk in our sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We are now to walk in good works. And so you have a duty in your salvation. And God's sovereignty in your salvation doesn't mean that you can coast into the afterlife with nothing required of you. You are to walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. God has called you to a purpose. And these good works are the evidence of a true and lively faith. They are the evidence that God has chosen you and changed you. Good works will always accompany a genuine faith. And so you are saved by grace through faith. That is, faith is the vehicle through which the righteousness of Christ is transferred to you. Your sins are transferred to Jesus and punished on the cross through this faith as well. And But your good works have nothing to do with the basis of your salvation. But if you have a true and valid faith, the good works are guaranteed to come from this. This is what Jesus meant when, when he said in Matthew 7, you will recognize them by their fruit. He said every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Those who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ will live a life that reflects that. You won't be perfectly good in this life, but you won't be the same person you were. There will be a change in you that will be evident to yourself and to those who know you intimately. And by these good works you can manifest your thankfulness to God. Living an obedient life before God is a way of thanking him for all he has done. It's showing your love for Christ and all he has done for you. And this can also strengthen the assurance of your salvation. If you love Jesus Christ in your heart, loving him is a fruit of salvation. As Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. These would be good works, living a life of good works, obediently loving Christ. And doing this is a witness to the truth of the gospel. And it will ultimately glorify God. And so the ultimate truth of salvation is that you are saved from the wrath of God you deserve by Jesus taking on the wrath of God on your behalf. You're saved from the death you deserve by Jesus dying the death in your place, paying the penalty for all your sins. But that only gets you back to zero. That doesn't give you the righteousness you need before God. You have to actively live a perfectly obedient life to inherit eternal life. And so you're saved not only by the death of Jesus, but also by his perfectly obedient life under the law. It's a double transfer. 
Your sins are transferred to him and punished on the cross. And his perfectly sinless, obedient record is transferred to you. Jesus lived a life you could never live. And he died the death you deserved in your place. So you can praise the Lord, giving glory to God for the gift of salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. Because although you are more sinful than you understand, God loves you more than you ever thought possible. And you would have continued in your state of sin and misery. But God, but God in his infinite grace, mercy, and love delivered you from your slavery to sin and death. And he brought you into a state of salvation by the only Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more you understand the truths of salvation, the more you will glorify and praise God with your life. The more hope you will have in your suffering. The more love you will have for your Savior. God sacrificed his only son so that you could be reconciled to him. And it's humbling to know that you bring nothing to the table before God. And it's moving to know that he did this all out of his mere good pleasure and love for you. He saved you from eternal damnation and he saved you to eternal life so that you would live a life of loving him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And so let the truth of salvation bring you to love God more each day bring you to live in obedience and faithfulness to all he has commanded you, knowing that God has saved you to live for him and his kingdom, to live as his new creation in Christ, because it's only through Jesus Christ that you're redeemed and reconciled to God. It's only through the life, death, and work of Jesus that you are saved. And so I want to ask you, have you received and rested in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Do you know that the only way out of sin and misery is the sacrificial sacrificial death of Jesus on a cross? Jesus is the only way to salvation. Believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing of the state we were in knowing of our sinfulness, our following our own way, following the world, following Satan. But you stepped in. You stepped in and changed us because you love us. You didn't leave us in our state. You didn't give us what we deserve, but you've given us in your grace more than we could ever imagine. So now, Lord, Continue to change our hearts and our minds. Bring us to love you and obediently follow your commands, doing the good works you have prepared for us to do, knowing that our salvation is in your hands alone, that we are yours. You purchased us with the blood of Christ, and we give ourselves over to you. May we continue to do the work of your kingdom glorifying you in our lives as a witness to the power of the gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.